When you choose to embark upon a social impact journey, it may feel like choosing the road not taken. The uncertainty of a path like this often sends the one who walks it into an ongoing process, trying to balance the needs of their individual existence with their vision towards something greater. The Living Well, Doing Good podcast is a space for change makers to explore the intersection of personal well-being and achieving their purpose-driven endeavors. Each episode, we dive deep into stories and lessons, learn to provide tools to overcome challenges that may arise along the way. This podcast series is brought to you by Aviv and Omer Hochbaum, social impact consultants from Tel Aviv, together with Leo DeMello, a well-being coach and business advisor based in Copenhagen. Okay, so hi everyone. Uh, Hello. Aviv here and next to me is Omer, my twin and business partner. Hi everyone. And of course, as always, we're joined by Leo all the way in Copenhagen. Hi. And I am very excited today because we have a special guest joining us, joining in on the conversation, uh, Karen Greenblatt. Hi. So, so happy that you're here with us. Me too. How are you? I'm well. I'm fine. Yeah. Well. Considering. Considering. I guess we're going to hear more about the considering soon. Um, basically, you know, we can't be talking, having a podcast about social impact and change makers without talking to change makers themselves. So Karen is here as uh, an honorary change maker, and we're just going to go right into the conversation. And I think not just honorary, actual change maker. And actual, I'm sorry. This is me showing that I'm also an Israeli. <laughs> Sometimes I make mistakes. And Karen is here. Vocabulary uh, mistakes. I, I will go on record and saying that Karen and I have, I was very honored to work with her in the past on some really great projects. And maybe we'll touch on them as well. So I was very excited to invite her to join the conversation. And I think we can all agree the best place to start is for Karen to tell us a bit about her journey. Uh, and you can say whatever you want right now. And we might chime in and take we it might away. Not. Can you hear the muezzin in the background? Can oh. you explain to the listeners what that is? It's a, there's a mosque uh, actually right across the street from where I live. And this is their call to the, to the uh, people to pray. Um, and we hear it a few times a day and I absolutely love it. I um, love it also. Yeah, and this one is actually a really nice singer, so I enjoy it. Yeah. Beautiful. You can, hear, you can hear it all the way here in Denmark. <laughs> Amazing. Um, right, so my journey. Um, it's, yeah, it's difficult to, to think where to start, but I, I would, maybe I'd start with an anecdote from my childhood because it, yes. it, it's a good example of, of who I am, I think. Um, when I was, when I was uh, a kid, um, I had a huge fight with my father and at some point he said he doesn't want to talk anymore and he sent me to my room and I was so upset by this and I, I went on we have this really old computer and we had this like CD-ROM with an encyclopedia on it um, and I went on there and I, and I, what we call today, I Googled, but I actually grolliered or I looked up, um, I looked up, uh, freedom of speech wow. and I, and I printed out, I think I was in fifth grade. <laughs> I printed out the, the title of freedom of speech and I left it for my dad on his, on his bedroom door. And I wrote on it. First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, sir. <laughs> I, I should be allowed to say whatever I want. <laughs> um, and uh, this uh, sort of paved my way to become a lawyer a little later on. Um, and um, so, you know, if come to think of it, from, from my early childhood, I think I had a very developed, maybe overdeveloped sense of injustice. Um, and obviously when you're, when you're younger, it starts with your you know, immediate surroundings and things that affect you personally. 
and as you get older, it's, it's more, you know, you open your eyes to things that happen around you in the neighborhood, in the city, in the world. Um, and when I was 15, I, I went to the Seeds of Peace camp, mm-hmm. um, which is an international organization that brings together youth uh, from, from different sides of conflicts. Uh, their focus is on the Middle East. Um, and, and I met, um, Arab youth for the first time, Palestinians and and kids from, from other, uh, Arab countries. And we had dialogue sessions and we had camp activities together. And I think this was probably my most, you know, substantial experience in, in becoming and, or in deciding to become a change maker throughout the rest of my life. Um, realizing, you know, what other people's pain looks like, um, realizing that uh, the narratives that you're told um, are not necessarily the truth, um, you know, that there are injustices that come from the people that you represent sometimes, um, and just that there are a lot of different life experiences and, and people suffer through a lot of stuff that, you'll you have the privilege uh not to suffer through and it's something that if you have talent and you have you know something to give you should find the venues um you know to invest in and uh, and take part in in changing what's wrong um and i think that the seeds of peace experience and i've i've remained active in that organization actually to this day in different forums um but that that was a very very meaningful experience for me in in really entrenching my commitment to um, to being aware of of problems and to figuring out how what I can do to to change them. It sounds like those. How many days was that first uh, the Seeds of Peace conference? The camp was about three weeks long. Oh wow! Yeah, I mean, I'm imagining like all these crazy realizations that you just said that happened in only three weeks and like coming home and doing what with all of that like other than being really empowered or like having all these ideas and thoughts and feelings like what did you do next yeah I mean it's it's a power it's such a powerful experience and and towards the end of the summer camp you know there's a lot of discussion about what happens when you go home, what you can do with all of this. You have new friends. How are you going to meet them? They're in other countries. What are we going to do? And <coughs> sorry, the first year that I attended camp was 1999, which was a year in which um, there was some agreement signed between uh, Israel and the Palestinians. Um, I can't even remember which one because there was such a long series of very small you know, achievements on that front. Um, but it was like the height of optimism um, in, in where we're going. And then, so we had a lot of, so we traveled to Jordan. We had like a Palestinian Israeli delegation going to Jordan after the camp. And we had, we, we went to dinners at each other's houses in, in East and West Jerusalem. And wow. we had a ton of activities. There was a huge new center for activity opened in Jerusalem and people used to cut, we used to go there after, we used to actually cut school to go there and, and just Ooh. hang out with people like us who have been through this meaningful experience. Um, and then the second year I went, uh, the next summer, when we came back shortly after the second intifada broke, um, and that completely changed to this day, the character of the activity in that organization, once you come home, because in the camp, it's sort of like a, like, um, in a garden of Eden and, you know, this really special circumstances that are far away from home in Maine, you know, on a lake, it's very like the the quintessential American summer camp experience, except with Jews and Arabs and, and Mm -hmm. Indians and Pakistanis. Um, and once you come home, you sort of crash into this really, really difficult reality. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's changed. Um, you know, the kids, the kids who go today don't have the same type of experience that we we were very privileged to have um yeah so it's i think i think that sort of forced the organization to transform the messaging and the activities 
towards leadership development and how do we focus on the people who have gone through this transformation at the camp and turn them into the leaders of the future so that they can fix what's going wrong here in this in this reality um and and so you know leadership development is something you don't necessarily have to do with a cross-border encounters you can do you know uninationally and it's it's not obviously as impactful but it's um it's something that that has results uh, a lot of people who have gone through this uh, organization have gone on to become leaders in their in their different industries um and really impactful people so it it works so what happened next maybe if- I don't know if we need to fast forward a few years or not. It seems like yeah. every year is pretty monumental, but. Yeah, I mean, if we fast forward a bunch, um, I, I went uh, to the military, which is something that I today regret, I have to honestly say. Um, mm-hmm. But that was also a very meaningful experience. Um, and uh, after the, the military, I went to acting school for a little while because, you know, oh, you, didn't know that. you always have to sort of, you know, go sideways for a bit to discover yourself. <laughs> um, and, um, and then I went to law school and I went to law school not to become a lawyer necessarily, but definitely out of this, these experiences to, to figure out how to be involved in changing our political reality. Um, and so during law school, I started taking all of these feminist courses, um, Mm -hmm. about law and gender and equal opportunity and, uh, and that sort of stuff. And, and all the, all the light bulbs started, started going off in my head. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, I clerked for the ministry of foreign affairs in Israel. And then I went on to do a master's degree at Georgetown university in Washington, DC, mm-hmm. um, in international law and human rights. And I kept on going with the, the women's sort of theme. Um, and when I came back, I started my career as a professional feminist, a professional feminist. Yep. I love that. What does it mean to be a professional feminist? It means you get paid to do feminism, which is amazing. (laughs) Um, It means uh, for me, it was working for one of the most veteran organizations in Israel doing uh, lobby for um, for gender economic equality. And I was the head of policy and advocacy. Mm-hmm. And so I would go around Parliament and um, try to get legislation passed. Um, I would, um, you know, get phone calls from women who have uh, experienced different types of issues of discrimination of of, of sorts, uh, sexual harassment, uh, discrimination over being pregnant, uh, discrimination. Um, you know, there was one case where uh, a dental student called us and said, you know, there's a specific like surgical um, um, internship in, in dental school that the, in the 25 year history of this university have never had a woman uh, be accepted to this to this uh, uh, internship and and they really wanted to and they said it can't be that there have never been qualified women and and so this type of uh, activity we were involved in and trying to figure out how to change systems that were broken Um, and that was one of my most fascinating roles ever Um, I loved it Um, it was it was really amazing to to be able to look at the bigger picture and find the holes and find, you know, where, where things aren't working the way they should be um, and, and figuring out the solution and, and kind of embracing this attitude of there are big things that are, that are broken and the solution is to do something about them. You know what I mean? It's like, it's not as intuitive as it sounds because a lot of people encounter big system-wide problems and they say, okay, that's just how it is. It sucks. Right. Um, and they don't necessarily do that extra step of, okay, let's change it. Mm-hmm. It's a different state of mind to be in. I think that's exactly why 
you know, hence the title Change Makers and why that is certainly a state of mind to be in where you are looking at the way reality is and saying, but that doesn't need, that doesn't mean it needs to be this way. Right. And it's, it's very exciting to hear you speak so passionately about, you know, feminism and, and taking on this role and, and doing so much for it. And I, I'm also learning more now as we're speaking about what you were able to do. And um, I think the boys are kind of, uh, they're taken aback, right? They haven't, <laughs> they, they don't know yet. I see, they I see them exchanging yet. looks. <laughs> they're like, what should we say? <laughs> You know, I I, I did think, a, I, I just that, yeah. I was just I was sharing with with Aviva Nomar earlier that um, uh, it is customary, I guess, to prepare for you know when you when you're meeting someone. But I, I once met uh, and I used to work in media, and I, I once met a, an editor who was a career. She'd been an editor for a long time, and she says my job is to keep ignorant, to stay ignorant, to, to basically ask the questions that are hopefully on most people's minds. So I made a very strong effort not to Google you, Karen, today. I know nothing about you other than what you mm. tell me today. So I'll, I'm just, I'm so curious. So I can start making up things. I'm, well, yeah, <laughs> well, the, the point is that um, it, I'm just sort of letting curiosity be the driver of the conversation. So so I'm, I'm just very, very interested to know. I mean, what you were, so I'm in the well-being space, the personal well-being space. And I see a lot of, of people with um, that have, you know, I, I see a parallel in what you were saying regarding when you see s system-wide problems, right? Mm -hmm. And and for some people that, you know, that might mean, well, they have so much going wrong for them in their body, they don't know where to start, right? Yeah. Uh, but some people, for some reason, decide to do something about it, right? They decide to, to right? And so I was just establishing a parallel with that. And I wonder if you, and you, 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 you sort of ran us through a, a part of your journey and I was very curious to know, I think our listeners will be curious to know as well, what what were the, if you can relate or if you can convey some of the, as a change maker, some of the challenges that you've encountered, like some of the main challenges you've encountered and how you tackle them, both maybe from a, or, you know, more a political or an advocacy perspective, but also from a personal, you know, gathering of your personal strength and, and keeping that going, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um... So I, I think I would share with you this really interesting conversation I had last night. Hmm. Um, I was sitting with a friend of mine um, who I've known for a long time, but not very well. And uh, he's an OBGYN. And we were, and I found a lot of parallels between what he was talking about and his struggles in this profession as a man and how I have struggled with um, the issue of uh, victims of uh, sexual violence. Um, and, you know, I can tell you without necessarily going into the details of what all the projects that I have been involved with um, on this issue, I can tell you that in the last decade, I've been doing a lot of uh, sexual harassment prevention work um, both on a systems level, so on a national level, for example, uh, I've been working for the last five years with the Ministry of Health about preventing sexual harassment during medical care, and also on a personal level, um, on, uh, you know, specific cases of people who come to me and share stories and want to have legal advice or want to just share and have somebody support them or want advice on how to go about it and whether to go to the media and to participate in Me Too um, or not and uh, lectures about it and going into uh, places of employment and, uh, and doing sort of cultural discussions about this. And one of the, one of the things that uh, stuck with me um, when dealing with this type of uh, of social change activity, which is very, very difficult and can be, you know, it can cause people to burn out very, very quickly, is the issue of boundaries, how you create boundaries with the people that you're trying to help without losing empathy and um, without losing the ability to, you know, to be connected with your heart and with what 
what drove you to go into this type of work in the first place? Um, you know, without blocking up or putting up walls um, that, that block you. It's more like building maybe glass uh, gates, right? Rather than building a brick wall. So you can see through it and you can open it if you want, but you can also close it if you want. Um, and, and I think this is probably one of the most interesting intersections of well-being and social change work that I've encountered. Um, because, you know, these personal stories, obviously I've been through a lot of types of sexual harassment and, um, you know, these personal experiences are what drives you to want to change the system and want to help others in these similar situations. And, um, and on the other hand, you know, when, when you hear someone else's story, it can really easily bring you down. It's sometimes very traumatic very heavy, very difficult, you know, people, people go through really horrifying things. And, and sometimes they just catch you in a bad day, right? Even if you're not, you know, experiencing your own trauma, it at the moment, you maybe just had a shitty day. And, and someone comes to you expecting you to be this superwoman, you know, to hold them together to give them a virtual hug or an actual hug to, you know, to listen to whatever darkness that they're going through at the moment and to be their light. And you have to learn how to turn on that light without necessarily being uh, sucked into, into the darkness together with them. So how did you set these boundaries then? Like, I, if if what I understood right is the, the idea is not to become too involved in these personal stories, and how did you manage setting this boundary? So first of all, when you say too involved, it can mean a lot of things. Involvement can mean emotionally involved. It can mean you know involved on a legal uh, uh, basis. It can mean involved in trying to facilitate a conversation with the person who hurt them. Um, or, or the institution that was supposed to protect them and didn't, um, or, or the institution that was supposed to respond in a certain way and didn't do it properly. So there's a lot of different ways to be involved in situations like this. And I think part of the way that you train yourself to do that um, is, is, first of all, when you start these conversations, the first thing I do is ask myself, am I currently at this moment able to contain the situation, the, the way that I am, the, the mood that I'm in, the circumstances that I have today, right? Uh, am I, you know, busy with something that requires all of my emotional energies? Am I, am I free? Am I in a really, really rare, amazing mood and I don't want anything to bring me down, right? Am I, am I in a mood of an open heart and, and able to share, you know, my, my strengths at this moment. And, and is this the right moment to, to, you know, to welcome somebody in and, and, and listen to them. Um, so that's the first thing that I do is just ask myself, how am I doing at this moment? And is this the right moment to take on this call? And if it isn't, then I will set a time. I'll set another time. I'll say, you know what, I want to dedicate all the time that I can to this and the attention and, Let's talk later tonight or let's talk tomorrow morning. Um, I'll never say no, right? I'll never, I'll never shoot, shoot people away when they're in this situation because it's very, very sensitive. But I'll, I'll always say, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'll be happy to help you. I'm open to this. I'm just, I just can't do it right now. And let's you know, set, a, set another time. So that's one thing. Another thing is um, to set the boundaries in the conversations in front of the other person. Because, you know, to say to them, look, I'm able to help you on the legal aspect, but I won't be able to represent you in court. I won't be able to come with you to the police station. I won't be able to, um, look, I won't give you my phone number. You, we can have this Facebook chat, or you can email me if you want, um, or I can call you from, a, from an unlisted number, but I'm not going to share my phone number because I can't be you know, the go-to call in the middle of the night when you're feeling overwhelmed. 
Um, there are 24 hour hotlines for this type of, of things and here are their numbers, right? So it's about opening up other possibilities to gain the support that they need and about saying what I am able to, to offer them and what I'm not. Um, so it's setting the boundaries within the conversation. And then the last thing is, how do you close it up within yourself? Once you did the conversation, right? And even if I say, look, I can help you on a legal question, I can't help you on a support, an emotional support uh, level, it's always going to be part of it, right? People come with their stories and their difficult stories and they can't do that separation themselves when they tell you what happened. They're emotionally involved in their own story. And so it's always going to include an aspect of emotional support, but once you close the conversation, once you've given the answer or offered the assistance that you can, how do you, you know, shut it down within yourself and not take it home with you or not take it on for the rest of your day? How do you say to yourself, I've helped this person, I've done everything that I could, I've given them steps to do after the conversation, right? Who to talk to after me? Who are the institutions, organizations, lawyers, people, psychologists, you know, who can give them the work, the, the, the assistance that I can't. Um, and I've, I've given them the tools that I can to, to move on and continue to other people who are more equipped to give them what they need from now on. And I've done my part and now I'm done. And that's a conversation I have with myself that helps me, you know, not get sucked into the, the emotional heaviness of, of dealing with this type of, uh, of story, um, you know, every few days or every few weeks. I'm like everything you said now, I'm so happy and I'm so excited about, you know, this conversation because the minute, like the first moment you said boundaries, I felt it in my heart. I was like, oh my God, yes. What an immensely important topic, certainly for change makers. You know, what moves change makers is this feeling inside themselves that there is an injustice or something wrong that's happening and they want to make it better. And in doing so, they are willing to sacrifice so much of themselves so, yeah. so often yeah. that, you know, burnout, uh, overwhelm, all these things they, they encounter so quickly. And you just laid out this step-by-step -step guide for how to set boundaries in such a thought out and professional way that I, I'm just, and I'm really in awe, but also so, I mean, to be honest, I, I struggle with boundaries and I, I and to the, to the point where, you know, if, if I know that someone uh, is asking for my help or there's a way for me to now take on something to hopefully, you know, make a positive impact or make a change. Um, and, and, and to, to say no or to say not now, you know, the amount of guilt that I'm probably yeah. met with, and the amount and of you know what I'll add to that mm -hmm. I think that there's um I don't know if it's fashionable but it's definitely sexy in the social change world to be burnt out it can oh, seem yeah. right it can seem like if you're not giving all 150 percent of yourself if you're not finishing every day like crying and and wanting to give away all of your clothing and, uh, you know, living on the street because it's not fair that some people live on the street and you don't want to be privileged. Right. Yes. <clears throat> it's almost sexy to, you know, to be, <clears throat> sorry, to be overwhelmed with how much you give and right. And I, what I say to people who start out in this profession and, or people who find themselves on the verge of burning out is that if you want to be able to give the most uh, to the world throughout your life, you have to train yourself to set boundaries and you have to you know, understand balance and you have to understand that some of your privileges you can't let go of and you should enjoy. And the reason is if you burn out within one, one year, two years, five years, 10 years, you're just gonna, you know, 
come out of the social change field and and go find a job where you make a lot of money and buy a lot of nice things and you know and you'll feel guilty for the rest of your life for not being able to stick with it um and not that making money is a bad thing and i'm i'm you know about to be making more money myself and it's important and we should talk about that as well yes. um But, you know, you, you know what I mean? I mean, you know, social change work can be extremely demanding and you feel mm -hmm. this commitment and you feel this guilt if you're not engaged with it for 16 hours a day. And it's not true, right? If you decide that you're a social change person, you can decide what it is in your capabilities to endure so that you can do it for longer so that you can do it throughout your whole life. Is it just volunteering once a week? Is it just, you know, giving money to charity? Is it, you know, choosing a career in social change? Is it not choosing a career, but starting an organization or volunteering for an organization or doing, you know, a certain period of your life, like dedicating one year of your life to doing amazing work and then going back on track? It can be a lot of different things and they're all needed. So it's about how much you can persevere. Um, I have a question and I, I, we've spoken in previous episodes about um, being overwhelmed in that sense. And, and obviously I think the, the boundary element is, is, is crucial, but oftentimes people need to come to an understanding that they are over, that they are indeed overwhelmed. And so I'm wondering if, if you've had an experience in the past where you've come to this understanding and, and how you, how you, how you grew from that. If yeah, uh, definitely. Um, have definitely experienced that. I think probably in every position that I filled thus far. Um, and, you know, At some, at some of these junctures, I think what I needed was a vacation, a hike, perspective, you know, um, going on a, on a walk in the forest, you know, that type of thing, going in to, for a swim. Um, and in other cases, it meant quitting. Uh, it meant quitting my job. Um, and I think, you know, first of all, therapy. Is, is one thing that I, I have to mention because right. I, you know, it's, it's not necessarily that I'm saying every single person on earth needs therapy, um, but I kind of am <laughs> because, yes. right, we all need doctor, we all need dentists, right? We all need family doctors. We all need, you know, someone to um, teach us driving. Right. We all we all need certain things in our lives at some point in our lives. And I think therapy is is something, especially if you're a change agent, um, you really need a safe space that's about you, not because we're selfless. It's it's not about that. It's because these spaces are where we incubate. These spaces are where we are able to process why we are feeling the way that we're feeling. Why is our work maybe not as effective as it should be? Why are we feeling stuck? Why are we frustrated? And all of these feelings that, don't, that aren't necessarily um, accurately defined in our own mind um, can, you know, if, if you process them correctly, you can sometimes come to the conclusion, yeah, I'm overwhelmed. I'm, you know, there's something's not right in, in the position that I'm in right now. Um, and what is it that needs to change, right? We are experts on problems and solutions. We mm -hmm. are, this is what we're good at. So right. it's just so hard, you know, to have that blind spot about ourselves that I think therapy can be extremely useful. And, you know, there's a lot of different kinds of therapy. I'm not saying necessarily psychologists or psychiatrists, but But, but somewhere that's really a space that's dedicated to processing what's going on with me, where am I going, what is, is it that I'm trying to achieve, and what's stopping me from achieving it. And, and in those, you know, so, so that's one really, really helpful tool that, that when I was debating what to do in a situation that was very difficult for me, 
I was talking to my therapist and she said, Karen, listen to yourself. You're sounding like a woman who is stuck in an abusive marriage, right? And I was talking about my place of employment. And once she said that, right, once she gave me this perspective of seeing myself as one of my clients, I was suddenly able to understand that I'm in a place that I need to get out of, right? That I'm in a place that's causing me to talk like that and a place that's causing me to feel fear and, and, and to feel like a victim and to feel like I'm not seen and not appreciated and limited and, and, and even abused, um, you know, verbally, obviously, but it, it doesn't matter because what matters is that once she gave me that perspective, I was able to, to bring my head out of the water, right. And take a breath and say, Oh, you know, I'm just like I say to people who are stuck in those types of relationships, you need to get out. I had to tell myself the same thing. It's, it's crazy. You just told this story because I, I, you know, I've experienced the same thing and I almost felt like you were sharing my story just now. And I myself was also in an abusive relationship with, in a social impact uh, project, not because it was an abusive one, but because I was being, I was so passionate about, you know, helping to make things better in that space and wanted so much to do and was expected to do so much. These, the boundaries just kept getting more and more blurry. And what I learned most is if I don't signal my boundaries for myself, no one will do it for me. And it was such a monumental moment. And certainly I was able to understand that with my therapist and to yeah. which I say, thank God for therapy, you know, <laughs> or for, but some you know, what, Aviv, it's not, it's not only that the boundaries keep getting blurry. It's that other people, especially employers in the social change space, will try constantly, not out of malice, but just because that's the way it is. This right. is the culture, right? They're going to try and cut away at your boundaries. Mm -hmm. They're going to try and get the most out of you. They're going to want, because they want to change the world too, right? right? They want to see it happen. Um, and, and you're not their client. So you're not necessarily going to be, and you know, it's just a phenomenon that we see in the social change space space. It's not that all these employers are abusive. It's just that a lot of times we as employers forget that our employees are under our care, um, and that we're responsible for their well being just as much as we're responsible for the, the results of our organization. Can I ask you what, what do you think that, you know, what actions actually from an employer's perspective, um, do you, I mean, looking back, would you, what kind of actions would you have liked to have seen systemically mm -hmm. as an initiative by the employers in that space to prevent this kind of situation? Or do you think this is just down to the each individual to just make their own mind up and, and leave or set boundaries or whatever? Or do you think there's something to be done from, from the employer side as well? That's an amazing question. Let me think about it for a second. <laughs> um, I think there's a lot to do culturally in like, if we look at us at a third sector, right? A, a nonprofit sector um, in a country or in a state, right? We can definitely think about forums um, to discuss the employment culture um, in that sector and to try and create um, different standards of, of how employees are treated, of how employees are seen, of, of professional development opportunities, of personal development opportunities, um, and of how to offer the, the essence of what's offered in the private sector, even when we don't have the financial resources for it. So for example, you know, a lot of nonprofit organizations won't have an HR person just because there's no money for it, right? Yes. There's so little money in this space that we want to spend every last cent of it on people who are going to do the actual activity of what the organization is supposed to do. And mm -hmm. only when you become a huge, huge organization, there, there may be an HR function. Um, and that just means that somebody else, for example, an executive director or somebody directly under them 
needs to have officially to have the responsibility for the well-being of employees. Um, so that's one thing that you can do systemically. You can, you know, make sure that organizations that have employees um, are are taking are accountable, right, for what's happening with their employees. Are have KPIs on them on on these things, right? How long are employees staying in my organization? Um, asking them once a year, you know, about their happiness. Asking them about their psychological safety. Asking them, you know, making sure that you're actually following and monitoring um, uh, their their balance, their working hours, their vacation times. Are they taking vacations? Are they, uh, you know, are they spending? Uh, time on their hobbies, on things that make them happy, and and you know, are they spending enough time with their families, if they have families, um, all kinds of things. And by the way, demanding from donors, right? Demanding from philanthropy resources for raises, right? Resources for uh, uh, development of of the personal uh, uh, salaries that people get. Because if people are stuck with the same salaries for 10 years, they're going to leave, right? They're, they're going to have, because our lives develop, right? We have, our families grow, our needs grow. We, we want better housing. We want, you know, our lives to move. And, you know, being stuck in the same sort of junior position with junior salaries is something that will, will drive us away from, from doing what we love to do. Um, so those are just, you know, examples of things that, that need to be thought of on, on, a, on a sector level, right? Um, I would also say the fact that we don't have the resources that high tech maybe has, right, to offer in terms of team building, in terms of, you know, uh, having parties and happy hours, it doesn't mean we can't uh, learn the 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 reasoning behind those activities team building you can do with zero money if you if you make it a priority and and that that's sort of you know the the kind of thing that i think good leadership within the the social change sector can can really create an immense change and create you know, executive director forums that share ideas about it, um, share resources. If an organization can't afford an HR person, maybe five organizations together can. And so they can together hire a person to take care of all of their employees because they're smaller organizations. There are creative solutions for everything. Um, and it's just a matter of, of really understanding that if you want to create more impact, more professionalized, deeper understanding of the material um, comes from long-term employees, comes from happier employees, come from satisfied employees, come from more professional employees. And, and all of these little things can make people really feel the difference. And I, you know what, I can give you one other anecdote about this. Sometimes, and there's research that shows this, um, employees find the, the thought about them a lot more important than the way that thought is expressed. For, so for example, if um, an organization doesn't give out uh, gifts or bonuses for a holiday, it's something that employees can leave a workplace uh, uh, due to, to, to that kind of issue. And it's something that can be as small as, as a, uh, you know, a $50 gift card. It can be as small as a bottle of wine right? But it's the thought of saying to the employees, there's a holiday. Thank you. We're, we're appreciating you. We see, we see you. you, right? That really makes the difference um, for a lot of people. It's not about the, the financial uh, worth of the gift. It's about the gift itself. So it's just, you know, it's prioritizing. I think that's so powerful. And I think I hope that you know the people listening there will be people with with uh with responsibilities in in organizations and it, i think it's just it's so powerful when when you say that from experience and 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 you were think you were talking and, and i was thinking of a, a another angle which is when that doesn't happen right and when you are not in an organization that 
has that uh, that uh, culture of in, and that du- that feels that duty of care and that does prioritize uh, the well-being um, of of its people as much as you know as it is prioritizing the impact that it wants to generate in the outer world. Um, I wonder if you if you have any 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 hacks or any tips you know that people can can do themselves apart from from the creating that space and finding you know like the therapy part of uh, you mean of employees life. yeah i mean as an mm. individual right as an individual when we have to tap into our own personal resources and and you know the tools that we are born with or that we develop as human beings what what has been the most crucial for you in 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 becoming in being resilient despite you know some some adversity which of, of course uh, you've you've mentioned amazing um so my answer is going to be divided into two first i'm going to go back to maybe this is becoming the theme of our conversation we are experts at fixing systemic problems right And if you're working for an organization that should be prioritizing the well-being of its employees and isn't doing it, I think that part of our responsibility is to raise that voice because, you know, you as the listener might have the confidence to come up to the executive director and say, or to the board and say, we need to prioritize this. And someone more junior than you or someone less confident than you won't. And so even if it's not for yourself, even if you're quitting, right, as you quit, raise that issue and tell them, right, for the other employees, if you want to keep them, if you want to retain the professional abilities of your organization, you need to prioritize this. So that's the first thing I want to say about that is we have responsibility to fix all of our surroundings, you know, to, to try at least. Um, And the second part of my answer is really figuring out, I'll be Marie Kondo for a minute, what brings us joy, right? Joy is such a powerful term um, that people forget, right? Joy is different than happiness and it's different, it's different from, from satisfaction. It's really a deep, deep um, emotion that covers right this this feeling of elation right what brings us this feeling of elation is it is it spending time with people that we love and we need to invest in those relationships is it doing an activity that makes us so you know just over the moon is it you know going swimming in a lake or taking that hike in the forest or, or, you know, taking a drive to the desert and spending a day meditating. Um, you know, it can be, it, it's, is it doing yoga? Is it doing, you know, physical activities, running in, on the beach? It can be so many things for different people, painting. Um, each person needs to really be truthful with themselves and make an inventory of what are the things that brings me joy? What are the things that, you know, is it having a date night with my partner um, and, and really investing in making it romantic um, and, and making sure that you prioritize it in the sense that, you know, a, a couple of years ago, I, I suddenly realized that my younger sister who I love and cherish so much I don't get to see her at all. And I had this conversation with her and I said to her, you know what, let's have a monthly date. And no matter what happens in our lives, we commit to each other to keep that date. We are going to have a sister's brunch and we're going to do everything that we can in order to not say, oh, you know, that happens every month. So we'll move it this once or we'll cancel it this once. If we start doing that, it's never going to happen. It's about really like being able to identify those things that make you joyous and committing to them knowing without guilt, right? Committing to them knowing that these are the things that will give you the fuel that you need to keep going and, and doing you know, important change work. Um, if it's you know lying on the couch and, and binging on RuPaul's Drag Race, 
then that's what you need to do. Look right? at him and light up. <laughs> you said his yeah. favorite words. Yeah. But um, um, I have, just to add to that, it's some. I have something that I say a lot, which sounds obvious, but it's not, which is don't forget to have fun. And I yep. say this to everyone because it's it's like so duh, but a lot of times you just forget to have fun. And for me, fun can even mean this daily reminder of putting on a song that I really like while I'm working. And just that is fun. Like yep. it's don't forget to have fun. And it's also remember that this is supposed to be fun. And if you try to remember that this is supposed to be fun, then it's probably going to be a lot better. So I'm sitting here and I'm obviously just loving every, having fun. I'm loving every part of this conversation because, you know, my initial thought, again, of having you, Karen, join this conversation is because from all the conversations we've ever had and having worked with you on various projects, I knew you would have great things to say to uh, change makers who are either just starting out on their path or have already done so for so many years, but are in this critical point in their lives where they're trying to make some important decisions. And we've taken a good part of the conversation, rightly so, in talking about, you know, the well-being side, about how we can first do well to us so that we can do good. And I kind of want to do a small pivot and say, okay, so we're doing well, or we're, we know how to better practice doing well, and we've talked about all these important things. How do we start, you know, what is this point? And I think you've had different parts in your lives where you've committed yourself to, okay, I'm going to start this project, or I'm going to initiate this uh, solution that I believe in, because it will help ho hopefully make an impact in uh, an ecosystem that I truly believe in. I kind of want to go there and see, you know, your experience there and what you might have to say to change makers who are setting out either on a new uh, social impact path. Um, That's a little fuzzy. Yeah, I'll, can Let's you be share, more specific. Yeah, can you, can you just share with us for the sake of time and also for the sake of sharing your experience with change makers that are listening in, um, something that has spurred you in the past and had you go how did you start one of your change maker journeys, as we call them, and just share share that one of your one of your um, specific journeys with the listener? Um, let me try and think what's the best example for this type of. Um... You know what I I me I've mentioned this before, and I'll maybe I'll give a little bit more detail about it. Um, for a good reason. Um, a, a few years back, um, two things happened pretty much in, in a similar uh, um, time in my life. One was that I was sick and I went to a doctor and, the, and I, that doctor sexually harassed me uh, while, while um, examining me. Um, and another thing that happened, I don't even remember if a few weeks before that or a few weeks after that, but in my job, in my work, um, a woman called and described um, a sexual assault that she's, uh, that she's been through uh, at a hospital. And she described what happened when she contacted the Ministry of Health to complain about it. And those two events um, put me in a path that started out uh, as just a project um, as, as part of my job uh, at Israel Women's Network as a um, head of uh, policy and advocacy. And, and I had the mandate right, to, to do something about this. And I started writing letters and meeting people in the ministry and trying to figure out um, why the system didn't have you know, things in place to, to prevent this from happening or to address it properly. Um, and at some point, as I started working on this, uh, I quit. I quit that job um, and started a, another job that had nothing to do with uh, sexual harassment. And I, I didn't want to leave the project because it was so personal. And it wasn't just that it was so personal. It was also that the change that was required was 
so vast um, and no one else was kind of taking the driver's seat on it. And I saw like, I was mapping out the organizations that might be involved in it. And there were a couple who were involved in it, but no one was kind of seeing the whole picture. And at that point, I just decided I would keep working on it like independently as a person, as a person who knows how to work the system without any official capacity, with no organization behind me. I just decided I would tell the Ministry of Health to keep inviting me to these meetings and to write up you know, the, the, the guidelines and the rules that need to be written up and send it to them and, and start forcing them to send them around to the lawyers and to the legal advisors and to the um, different HMOs and to the different institutions in the system. And I've been doing that for five years um, on a personal capacity, like totally nobody's telling me to do it. Nobody, it, it's really, and that's why I wanted to share this story with you because I think that that's a really good example of how it becomes an inherent part of your personality. You don't actually need a title to get in the door. You don't actually need an organization behind you to make, to create systemic change. If you teach yourself or gain somehow the tools to understand how a system works and what needs to change or who are the people you need to engage in order to, to create that sort of change, then you can just go ahead and do it. And, and we're just about to publish these rules that I was very, very um, um, crucial in, in uh, uh, drafting uh, with the ministry. Um, they did keep calling me back to those meetings and they do keep you know, sending me these emails that they circulate around to all the professionals. And you know, I, I, I really had no official business doing that, but as a citizen with, who cared about the issue and who had you know, the, the skills to help them out and to really be an outsider and, and say, you know, there's something about working inside the system, the people who work for the ministry, that <clears throat> makes it difficult for them to be brave or to be bold about trying to change the way things work and being on the outside of it, looking in and saying, if the rules aren't in place and we need to change a law, let's change the law. Where, where is it? Show me, like, let's see what the language is and, and actually change it. Let's find the member of parliament who can lead this and get it done, right? There's, you're a ministry, you can change laws if you decide that this is what needs to be done in order to allow us to create the database or whatever it is that we want to do. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm bringing my personal energy of change to, to, you know, to a government institution that's very weary of change. And that's something that I think was really key in, in being able to, to move it along, even though it took five years and it's very slow and, you know, systems move slowly, still it's about to be published and it's about to happen and, it's, and the whole system is about to change because I wouldn't give up just because I lost my professional title, right, for that purpose um, didn't mean for me that I was going to let go of this project that was very, very important to me on a personal level. And so I think, you know, if, if, if there's a takeaway about this is once a change maker, always a change maker. Yes. <laughs> will you be celebrating this, this publication? And how will you be celebrating? Omer wants, in, Omer wants to be invited. I'm sensing. It sounds like Omer's buying me a bottle of champagne. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, you just tell me when. Just <laughs> Will give do. Me the day. Will do. For sure. So Celebrating, inspiring. by the way. Celebrating yeah, is part of well-being. That was, yeah, that was... And, uh, and you know, that's something that we talk about a lot with change makers is that they forget to do that. They, they forget to own their accomplishments or they don't always, not so much forget, they are shy about it. They don't yeah. think they deserve to own their accomplishments and... Hearing you say, you know, let's get a bottle of champagne. I love that because, yeah, it, it you know, we've worked with a few uh, change makers. And oftentimes when we get to the point of either measuring your impact so that you can talk about it, so that you can say, hey, this is what I've accomplished. 
also for the sense of, you know, getting more people involved, having people believe in what you're doing. But yeah, for saying this is working and I've done it and owning up to it. You know, there's there's a metaphor that I used once in, in a team meeting where when everybody was very depressed about what was going on in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was around when when Trump was elected president and everybody was kind of depressed about what's going to happen with women in the world and how mm-hmm. is this going to impact us and our work. Um, and I use this metaphor where, you know, you if you work on your garden and you find a weed, right? You start pulling out the weed and you pull it out more and more and more. And the more you pull out, the more the earth sort of clears over it and you see how much thicker it becomes inside the earth and how much more work you have in order to pull the whole thing out. Um, And then, you know, you get tired. So someone else comes and replaces you and pulls out more and more and more of this weed. And it becomes this huge root, right, that you're pulling out of the ground more and more and more. And someone else comes and replaces you and generations pass, right? And people keep pulling out this bad root from the ground that's ruining the garden. And the key here right, is to stop for a moment and look at the pile of all of the weed that you've unearthed, right? To look at the, of all of the things that, the people that came before you, the parts that you pulled out yourself, um, of course you need to also focus on how much work is left to be done. But also you need to take a break sometimes and say, you know what, We've, we've done something, we've changed something in the world and you need to really be able to appreciate small victories not not just focus on on them because Mm -hmm. because sometimes you can lose track of of big systems change that might take years to achieve um if you only focus on small things and it's it's kind of you know it, it can also be um it can also burn you out if you only achieve small things and you don't talk about like larger processes, but you do need to celebrate those small achievements and it'll help. <laughs> it's definitely a good mix. I, I, what comes to mind, I remember Omer on one of his, uh, one of the business trips he did for one of our uh, social impact clients in New York. Uh, when he got there, you know, the project was uh, to working with uh, small businesses to empower local businesses and strengthen local communities. And the main focus was to get more businesses on board. And it was very difficult because it's this whole new body to work with local businesses. And how do you get them on? And how do you get them to trust you? And this startup is still pretty new. And Omer got to the office and he literally made them all, you know, whenever there was a new business that joined to stop and I think at first they were using post-its because he didn't even he didn't have a computer screen that he could use but he made them like add a color ring the bell to the board and tell everyone look there's another business that joined and he told me the energy in the room like it changed and people were more ready to get another business and get mm-hmm. and it was really a powerful moment and yeah small celebrations definitely and then having that posted board continue to grow so you can look back and see all the accomplishments and yeah, definitely uh, a story that... And what, what's great about small celebrations is that they're not fossil fuels. They regenerate, right? You keep going, you keep getting mm-hmm. small achievements, you keep celebrating them, it keeps fueling you to go mm-hmm. on. I mean, I feel like this could be a, a perfect place to end with celebrations. I think that's a good note. And unless uh, someone has another thing to say, Leo, Karen, Omer. Karen, thank you for joining us today. This was amazing. Yeah. This Leo. was a pleasure. <laughs> Thanks it was so much. such a pleasure for us as well. And, and, and I don't think that we could have chosen a, a best, a better, you know, first guest for, you know, it's, it's the conversation completely uh, embodies and you embody She's doing what, a what happy this dance, pod- everyone. <laughs> embodies that what what we meant to achieve with this podcast. So it's incredibly gratifying, and it was it's been wonderful to uh, to explore all these topics and your own journey. So thank you for sharing. Thank maybe, you uh, guys for having me. Maybe we'll have you back again. Hopefully, hopefully. there's so much more to talk about with you. For sure. So uh, thank you to all our listeners, and we'll be back again with uh, another episode next week. See you then. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. 
and nothing herein is intended as professional or medical advice. If you are sick or think you may need medical help, seek advice from your healthcare provider.